You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again. You're back with Jay Shapiro. The first thing I want to talk about is something that's coming up now. It has to do about the uh, what's called the Nakba, which is the May 15th. That's the day that the State of Israel was founded. And uh, it is called the Nakba Day by the Palestinian Arabs. Nakba means catastrophe. So what Israel calls its founding day, the Arabs, uh, Palestinian Arabs, call the day of catastrophe. And that is May 15th. Now something came up this week having to do with Nakba Day and the American Congress, in particular the U.S. House of Representatives. So I want to speak a little bit about that. And first I want to start with a little historical review, which I think is familiar to most, if not all, of the listeners, but it has to be reviewed once once again. Uh, As I said, Nakba Day, the Catastrophe Day, is sort of a lament for the failed attempt to destroy the state of Israel when it comes into being. Keep now just a little bit of the history. In 1967, uh, uh, several Arab countries uh, who could not destroy Israel in 1948, when Israel came into being, got together again and ready to launch another genocidal attack against Israel. However, it was thwarted by a preemptive attack in the Six-Day War. It was really miraculous. Seven years later, Arab countries, aided by the Soviet Union, launched another genocidal attack known as the Yom Kippur War, and and their, their goal was, of course, another Nakba, a genocide. Israel survived another Nakba. Now, attempts to destroy Israel were continually aided by the Soviet Union, by Muslim and other non-aligned countries for many years, and they were indirectly aided by the UN. So murdering Jews and destroying Israel was the policy and practice of Palestinian terrorist organizations supported by Arab and Muslim communities, What's happened now, there's been a slight change. Israel has made agreements with a number of Muslim countries, but there are still those, particularly the Palestinians, who want to destroy Israel. Now, it's interesting, uh, when back back years ago, when Israel was trying to end these, uh, these efforts at genocide, the, the Israel government, which is led by the Labor Party and backed by U.S. President Bill Clinton, uh, agreed to implement the Oslo Accords, which not only legitimized Arafat and the PLO, but gave them a mini-state under a Palestinian authority, and Israel promised more concessions. What well, this didn't stop the Palestinian terrorism, so when... The Labour Party leader Ehud Barak 
backed again by Clinton, offered Arafat nearly everything he demanded, including a Palestinian state all of Judea and Samaria, which is called the West Bank and parts of eastern Jerusalem. Arafat rejected it and declared a second, more violent conflict, which has come to be known as the Second Intifada. Meanwhile, the um, Palestinian Authority was kicked out of Gaza by uh, another terrorist group, Kabbas, and it only has a certain amount of control of the West Bank. It would be kicked out of there by Hamas also, but it's more or less protected by the uh, the, uh, Israeli army. They they also had, back in 2002, Russia, the United States, the European Union, and the UN proposed what they called the Roadmap to Peace, but that last either. Also, they tried to uh, launch what they called the Geneva, Geneva Initiative, but which was a st- basically basically an extension of the Oslo Accords, and it included Israeli withdrawal to the 1949 armistice lines, uh, a right of return for some of the Arab refugees. And this became known as the two-state solution. However, Palestinian terrorism remains the decisive factor. And uh, also, Iran has declared it wants to destroy Israel. So it's interesting. I assume that destroying Israel is the reason why Iran wants to bomb and supports protests in Lebanon, Syria, and Gaza. It's why the Obama administration sought to deal with Iran why the Biden administration seeks to renew that deal, even though the Trump administration did away with the uh, so for Palestinian terrorist organizations like the PLO and Hamas, it's it's the reason for existence. The they they want to make what they call an Islamic jihad, which is a holy war. That is why the Palestinian Authority pays monthly salaries to terrorists who are in prison rewards families of those who were killed. They're considered martyrs. It's what is taught in the PO and Hamas-run schools, what they advocate in their media. It's what the Muslim organizations, such as the Muslim Brotherhood and Muslim student organizations around the world teach. It explains where the rise in anti-Semitism hostility to the state of Israel. So, preaching and teaching hatred of Jews demonizing Israel and declaring that Israel has no right, no right to exist and deny the Holocaust, denying the connection between the Jewish people and the land of Israel and glorying terrorists as freedom fighters is not only immoral and anti-human, it leads to violence. It's expressed often as a religious doctrine and supported by religious leaders. It's, it, it's, it's bigotry it's, uh, and of, of the worst kind. So that is uh, what the Nakba is. The, the Arabs see that the day the state of Israel was created uh, as a day of calamity for them, and they followed up by everything to destroy Israel, and it didn't work. So I'm giving this to the readers as a little bit of background. I'm sure most of you know this, but ever, something came up last week. Uh, over the years, the Nakba Day event has evolved into hate fests against Israel and the Jews. Now, what happened was 
that a member of Congress, Rashid Tlaib, who's a Democrat from Michigan, whose deep hostility to Israel has exposed her to the charge of anti-Semitism, attempted to reserve the auditorium of the Capitol Visitor Center for a Nakba Day event uh, on May 15th. Uh, interesting. The, I mean, this is a, a member of the American Congress who is going to have an event uh, essentially calling for the destruction of the state of Israel. And uh, she, uh, she, this is supposed to be done in Congress. And uh, now, why, why didn't she go ahead? Because the House Speaker, a Democrat, I'm sorry, a Republican from California, Kevin McCarthy, block the event. Now, uh, various people, including the, uh, the, the head of the uh, uh, Anti-Defamation League, uh, wrote to McCarthy, the head of the uh, House, expressing concern about Tlaib's planning, gathering, calling for scrutiny to ensure that no events taking place under congressional auspices are used to promote genocide. And uh, the, uh, some of the co-sponsors of this event who have trafficked in anti-Semitism expressed support for terrorists and called for boycott of Israel are supporting this uh, event that was being planned by this member of Congress. Now, the, uh, what happened was that the event was canceled by the Speaker of, of the House, and rightfully so. But then something came along, a Jew, a senator named Bernie Sanders, who's an independent representing Vermont, offered the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee's hearing room which to have the event uh, of this Nakba Day event. That is something which apparently, according to the rules, the Speaker of the House, McCarthy, cannot stop. Now, this is obviously disgraceful. Sanders has publicly expressed in his pride in his Jewish identity, and he says he's pro-Israel, but he's offering a platform for an anti-Israel event sponsored by groups tainted by anti-Semitism. So, as the Jerusalem, Jerusalem Post pointed out, it is not only disgraceful, it is shocking. Now, there ought to be room for thoughtful, fact-based discussion of the circumstances of Israel's birth and the events that surrounded its establishment. That is something I reviewed for the listeners just a few minutes ago. But that is not what Nakaba Day is about. Last week, according to the Anti-Defamation League, Nakba Day events in the United States featured speakers who openly and explicitly called for violent attacks on Israelis and on Jews. They waved the flags of designated terror groups and they chanted of intifada. They called for a campaign of violence against Israeli Jews. Now, Sanders, who is Jewish, uh, did he realize that what he was enabling? 
Or if he didn't, what is clear is that he has a major blind spot when it comes to close associates who have been accused of anti-Semitism. Now, that, by the way, and I, I base this on what I saw in the Jewish in the Jerusalem Post, and I think it's true, this speaks to a broader problem in, uh, in America in progressive politics. <coughs> progressive politics is now a bed for anti-Israel action and propaganda. Uh, the uh, partisan politics should never get in the way of doing what is right. Those people in the Congress, those women, Rashida Tlaib, Linda Sarsour, and Ilhan Omar, apparently are rising stars in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. They get a tremendous amount of news coverage. We even see it here in Israel. I watch some American programs, and these anti-Semites are getting more and more coverage. Nobody ever heard of them five years ago, but they are part, perhaps the major part of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, but they are also deeply controversial figures who have a history of engaging and rhetoric regarded by the Jewish community as anti-Semitic. I've heard what they have to say. Uh, I, they are simply anti-Semites. So obviously, a, any senator, but particularly a Jewish senator like Sanders, who should keep a low, large distance between himself and these anti-Semites, also, he should actually denounce them publicly. However, <coughs> this Jewish senator has embraced their endorsement as a reciprocated in kind, even goes, going so far as to grant to his uh, approval to an event centered on unadulterated hostility to Israel and organized by groups accused of anti Semitism. <coughs> what this means, if you think about it, is that uh, Sanders, who's essentially an elder statesman, he's an older man, he's a member of Congress, member of the Senate, is conducting himself in this way, and that should trouble all Americans. The uh, It's interesting. This not-for-day debacle should signify a watershed moment in the conversation surrounding Israel and the United States. There should be no place in Congress for rhetoric that characterized the establishment of the State of Israel as a catastrophe. Among um, other things, Israel is a staunch ally of the United States, and as we understand it, the overwhelming majority of Americans of both parties, Republican and Democrat, do support Israel. So therefore, to have a, a, a celebration of the uh, Israel as a catastrophe in the halls of Congress is simply wrong. Americans should expect better from their elected officials. And the officials themselves should have the integrity to stand against hateful and incendiary rhetoric. 
even when, when going along with it may appear to be something politically expedient, there is simply no excuse for this. And so the Speaker of the House was right in not giving them a hall and a place to spew their anti-Israel and anti-Semitic jargon, but we have a Jewish senator who is supporting them. So that in itself, the, the, the Jewish senator, that's, that's sort of questionable what kind of a person he is, claims to be pro-Israel. The fact that the Congress, uh, the head of the House, did not allow a room to be used for an anti-Semitic and anti-Israel uh, uh, rally, if you will, is a good sign. But we have to continue to remind ourselves, remind the American public, which is mostly pro-Israel, that there are those, particularly in the progressive arm of the Democratic Party, who are not only anti-Israel, but they're anti-Semitic, and they do not hide this fact. So it's a very serious question, and one that we have to increasingly and continually point out. It's the duty of the Israeli government and the Jewish organizations in the United States to keep the public and the Congress aware of those organizations whose goal it is to see the destruction of the state of Israel and, not, and certainly not give them an audience, a home, from which to blast forth their propaganda. So the very fact that congressmen wanted to use the halls of Congress to do something anti-Jewish and anti-Israel is in itself a problem. Thankfully, it was stopped, but it's still going to head, go ahead under different auspices. But anti-Semitism is alive and well, and we have to continually struggle against it wherever it appears, even if it appears in the halls of Congress. I'm sure that there are individual uh, members of Congress who are anti-Semites. You have, you have um, uh, more than 500 members of Congress. Obviously, you're going to find a few anti-Semites among them. You're going to find a lot of people, the majority, who are pro-Israel and, is, I guess you could say, pro-Jewish, if that's the opposite of anti-Semitic. But the fact remains that there is a progressive group that is actively uh, anti-Israel and, in other words, anti-Jewish also, and we, we, we continually have the responsibility to remind the public of this. Anti-Semitism is the oldest disease in the world. It continues. It's been around since there have been Jews, and we have to keep it out of everywhere especially out of the halls of Congress. I'll be back after the break. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is the radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Uh, you're back with Jay Shapiro. It's interesting to note that uh, I have to prepare this program 
at least a day or two days before I send it in uh, so that it will be uh, broadcast. And sometimes the news catches up with me. Uh, on Sunday, I prepared the first part of this program, which I said uh, in great detail how the uh, anti-Semitic members of Congress were trying to make a Nakba event to celebrate or uh, the, uh, I should use the word celebrate, that's a wrong word, I guess to memorialize what they call the Nakba Day, which is the day that the State of Israel was created. It's the opposite of a celebration for them. Uh, it's a Memorial Day, I guess you could call it. At any rate, Kevin McCarthy, the uh, head of the uh, Democrats in the House, the Democrat, I'm sorry, the head of the Republican majority in the House, did not allow the House uh, to be used for uh, this event. Instead, it was put over into another side uh, hall, as I mentioned in the uh, previous segment of the program. And a day later, I was preparing the next segment of the program, and I opened up the newspaper, and I came across an article that said the U.S. House Speaker Kevin uh, McCarty had blocked an event marking 75 years of Palestinian suffering since Israel was established in 1948, he promised to replace it with a bipartisan discussion celebrating Israel. So McCarthy's event actually took place. Unfortunately, only Republicans spoke. Prominent pro-Israel Democrats and lawmakers were not invited. Now, I can't explain why he didn't invite the uh, Democrats. I mean, if you're pro-Israel, the party shouldn't matter. And so uh, uh, the, the Nakba event was organized by Rashida Tlaib, the Palestinian American Michigan Democrat. Uh, and so uh, was, it was something he couldn't stop. So he went and said, honor the 75th anniversary of the U.S.'s relationship. The, it, 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 a speaker of the House is uh, keeping a lawmaker's right to use a room in the House if, is rare, if not unprecedented. The uh, McCarthy's action in keeping the uh, anti-Israel people from using a hole in the house, uh, a true praise from an array of centrist pro-Israel groups, including the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, Conference of Presidents, the major American organizations, and the Anti-Defamation League. The Tlaib uh, actually hosted her anti-Israel event on the Senate side of the Capitol, the, uh, as I mentioned, she secured a room with the help of the Jewish uh, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders uh, of Vermont. Now, the McCarthy's event, which was pro-Israel, went ahead on Wednesday night, but unlike Tlaib's event, it was close to the media, and apparently it was also close to Democratic lawmakers. And it were staffers for APAC, 
and uh, and Republican lawmakers and their staffers there. The the uh, it's interesting. Three of the most outspoken pro-Israel Democrats in Congress are not there, and it appears that they were not invited. They all confirmed to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency did not get invitations, although they asked not to be identified. The it's interesting. The uh, according to someone who was present at McCarthy's event, the pro-Israel event. Speakers included McCarthy, uh, who discussed his recent visit to Israel. He was here about a week ago, and uh, two Jewish Republicans in Congress uh, who uh, served uh, during uh, three pre previous Republican administrations. They also spoke. Now, McCarthy's office did not respond to inquiries why the Democrats were not invited. The uh, I, I, I myself I question that. The uh, the uh, the the other event sponsored by Congresswoman Clay was pretty much anti-Semitic, and he um, McCarthy said, "I'll never allow it uh, to happen in this body." I've watched members on the other side of the aisle say this time and again. Uh, Anti-Semitism, he said, will always stand up against that no matter where it is. I just came back from a bipartisan group of members going to the 7th anniversary of Israel, which is true. He was there last week. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, a Jewish senator who is an independent uh, agrees with the anti-Semites. The uh, it's interesting. The uh, asked about attendance of APAC staffers at the McCarthy event. The uh, they said that that uh, McCarthy canceled uh, the use of a room for anti-Israel stuff, but bipartisan support of Israel remains the the uh, main thing, and uh, so they they. Publicly, the Jewish organizations publicly uh, put out a statement that they appreciate Speaker McCarthy's leadership in, can in their words, in canceling an odious anti-Israel event and then hosting a program supporting the Jewish state. And we also applaud the numerous Democrat and Republican members of Congress issued statements in solidarity with the Jewish state as it confronts terror attacks. So the... Uh, Tlaia went on with her anti-Israel uh, event. The Kevin McCarthy had a pro-Israel event. Why he didn't invite the Democrats is something which is still open. If any more information uh, I can find about this, I'll convey it to the listeners. The next subject I want to touch is something that uh, I was very happy to see. It turns out that more than 500,000 Israelis now live in what's called the West Bank. That's more than a half million people. Keep in mind that settlement in the so-called West Bank didn't begin until several years after the Six-Day War. Actually, the Six-Day War was back in 1967, and the first settlement took place, I think, in the early 1970s. 
The population of Israelis residing in the West Bank now makes up more than half a million people. A report uh, was made by the Yesh Regional Council. Uh, Yesh stands for Yehuda and Shomron, and the, the Hebrew, the Hebrew letters spell Yesha. So the Yesh Re, uh, Regional Council uh, put out a report that as of January of this year, the Israeli population in Judea, Samaria, and the Jordan Valley stands at 502,678 residents in approximately 150 communities. The uh, mayor of the Gush Etzion region is the chairman of the Yesha Council, and I quote, he said, the region is flourishing and thriving with 150 communities, of which are four cities, a magnificent university, tourist centers, and high-tech industries. Real estate developers are increasingly investing in and developing the region, uh, testing to the high demand. The release of construction restrictions will increase the desired Israeli development in the area and lead to a decrease in prices. Now, what's happened, by the way, is that there is a, a lot of people living in the central part of Israel. Uh, there's simply not enough housing. And what housing there is is extremely expensive because of the demand. Unfortunately, even after 25 years, and with more than half a million residents, they're prisoners of military administration. It's not under civilian rule. Uh, the military administration whose actions do not correspond with the reality on the ground. So the head of the council said that they'll continue to work with the present government with the aim of adapting to the changes and maintaining the momentum of construction and the development of roads and infrastructure in the area for the residents for all of Israel. So he pledged there'll be a millions of Jews living in Judea and Samaria in the future. And he spoke, uh, interesting, uh, he spoke uh, at, at the remains of an Ottoman area train station in Sebastia, which drew thousands of participants. The uh, interesting, now it's right near where I used to live. I, live, I lived in Carnation, Rome. My daughter still lives there. So what they want to do is bring millions of people to Judea and Samaria. And uh, a, a interesting, a something called the Sovereignty Movement published a declaration signed by 56 politicians, including Prime Minister Netanyahu, support massive housing construction in the West Settlements, West Bank Settlements. And what was one of the things that they really want to do, beside being very Zionistic to settle the country, the country has a tremendous housing crisis. And uh, if the more you build, the more chances are you'll, you'll bring down the prices also. So uh, it's interesting by the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the city of Jerusalem became entirely under uh, Israeli control back in the Six-Day War, uh, which is, uh, what, 56 years ago. And now the... Uh, the uh, the religious residents 
they are 36% of the Jerusalem population, and the secular are 28% of the population. The 42% of the people living in Judea and Samaria, which is only 214,000 people, live in cities. There's a place called Modini Lid, Beitari Lid, Maladumim, Ariel, and um, others live in smaller towns. The, uh, the, the interesting, the, the, this is what happened over time. So that, that's really nice. It's very nice that the that not only did Israel uh, uh, take over those areas in defense of war back in 1967, but it's really part of historic Eretz Israel. It's more historic Eretz Israel than the coastal plain. The coastal plain where Tel Aviv is, for example, actually was belonged to the Philistines. Historically, it wasn't part of the Jewish area of the Holy Land. So now what you have is the, the major Jewish population of the state of Israel lives in, in originally what was Philistine territory, okay. and only now when they begin to fill up the historic Jewish area of the Holy Land. But another and uh, interesting uh, subject, there is something called the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. It's known by its initials, IHRA, and uh, part of the work of uh, experts in that organization, a number of basic definitions were drafted and adopted to deal with the phenomenon of anti-Semitism and, and Holocaust and Nazi crimes. The IHRA definition of anti-Semitism was adopted by the Israeli government back in 2017, and since then it's been used as a uh, tool in the work of Israelis' ministries around the world in the international fight against anti-Semitism, and uh, an effort is being made to promote Holocaust remembrance and work against Holocaust denial. It's, so it's intended to equip countries with the tools to deal with the phenomenon of Holocaust denial. What this definition is, is an expression of recognition by countries and also organizations of the need to denounce distortion and denial of the Holocaust, both at the national and the international uh, uh, level. By the way, the, uh, they added to this something very interesting. There is a Roma people, the R-O-M-A, what we call gypsies, and the, uh, this IHRA definition of discrimination was also added to Roma people in 2020, and it's intended to help deal with the widespread hatred that also manifests itself both in World War One and during World War II, because the Nazi Germany marked this group, the Roma, the Gypsies, for persecution and mass murder. That's something that's pretty much under the headlines, but the people who deal with the IHRA def def definition felt it is not only just the Jews, but other people who were discriminated against 
because of who they were. In this case, the uh, Roma, they wanted that to be included. So it doesn't in any way detract from the definition about anti-Semitism, but includes other persecuted people whom the world seems to forget. And we feel it's our responsibility as Jews and as the state of Israel to see that to it that other people who are persecuted for what they are is something that's been happening to us and therefore we could recognize we should recognize it when it happens to other people. This is really important. The uh, there's a false represent, representation that the state of Israel was established because of the Holocaust. And uh, it wasn't. It was established because of what the Jews had done for a hundred years before that. It's a whole story unto itself. But to say that the state of Israel was established because of the Holocaust and the result of the Holocaust is simply not true. It's just that the, the uh, Holocaust, what happened to the Jews in Europe, six million Jews who were killed, accelerated the effort to see to that an independent Jewish state should be established. So it wasn't, let's put it this way, the state of Israel was not established because of the Holocaust, but it was its establishment was accelerated because of the Holocaust. And even when the UN agreed and voted to establish the state of Israel, they did nothing to uh, see to it that protected against the enemies who tried to destroy it just when it came into existence. It was the Jewish people themselves who uh, who essentially defended the creation of the state of Israel with their lives. Uh, there were only, uh, there were only uh, uh, a finite number of Jews living in, uh, in Palestine at that time. Now we have close to 9 million people, not all of whom are Jews, by the way, a little over 7 million are Jews, but we have a tolerance here for other minorities, including the Palestinians, who essentially uh, their brethren are right next door trying to destroy us. But that's a story unto itself. The bottom line is the government has adopted a, uh, uh, the uh, definitions of, uh, of Holocaust denial and anti-Roma activities. And I think that's really important because of what we have suffered we have to see to it that other people uh, who suffer should be helped or should be remembered. It's interesting, by the way, I think if you stop the average person in the street in any Western country and ask them who the Roma are, they don't. Uh, they really don't know. If you go to certain uh, countries, particularly in Eastern Europe, I remember I was in Hungary, and you see a tremendous number of gypsies there, and they're called the Roma people. And uh, they, they were also targeted by the Nazis. Why, I don't know. I guess because they're not Aryans. But we feel as Jews that it's our job not just to remember what happened to us, but what, uh, what happened to other minorities who were persecuted simply because who they were. We, ta we take that as a national responsibility, and I think that really speaks well of the state of Israel. I'll be back after the break. You think you can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Warning. Take cover. 
The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to repeat, uh, it really is uh, something that uh, it's, people are aware of. It's in the newspapers, it's in the news. I've spoken about it, but uh, it has to be repeated so people really realize what's happening. I'm talking about the current situation in Gaza. Now, there is no doubt that this a situation, which is really terrible, could have been completely different. Back in 1993, Israel concluded an agreement with the Palestine Liberation Organization, which at that time was led by Yasser Arafat, and that was famously or infamously known as the Oslo Accords. They were signed actually on the White House lawn. All kind of uh, important people were invited. Israel agreed to recognize the PLO as a representative of the Palestinian people, and the PLO agreed to recognize Israel. It's interesting that, um, to the best of my knowledge, only two people spoke out against the agreement that time at the on the. Um, on the uh, White House dorm, one was um, a uh, uh, an American commentator who was not Jewish, and uh, another was um, another American commentator who was Jewish, both of whom said that this is a terrible mistake, really a bad mistake. At any rate, they went away, uh, continued with this uh, agreement, and according to it, the PLO, whose very name indicates what they are, the Palestine Liberation Organization, meaning to liberate Palestine from the Jews, they changed their name to the Palestinian Authority. And what happened in that agreement was, as a first step, control of Gaza and Jericho was handed over to the Palestinian Authority. And this was supposed to be followed by a five-year interim period leading to final status talks, which would also include Jerusalem, the West Bank, and some other issues. <clears throat> Everybody said this was the fantastic possibility of Palestinians and Israel's living by side by side in peace. The important things, for example, there was an airport in Gaza, control was given to Arafat. Gaza has excellent beaches and about 10 degrees in the Gulf states in the summer. The airport could have brought in thousands of tourists. Tourists create jobs and prosperity. So everything looked really optimistic. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, international hotel chains came to look at Gaza as a potential site for a tourist industry. This included Holiday Inn, Intercontinental, and Howard Johnson's. They all offered to build huge hotels in Gaza. 
it's interesting that people seem to have forgotten that these major uh, hotel chains actually came and evaluated the chances of opening successful resorts in Gaza. Of course, Arafat demanded a share in the hotels. The the hotels explained to Arafat uh, that they would pay taxes on their profits but would not give Arafat shares in the hotels. It's very interesting how Arafat wanted simply to make money out of that. The, the next thing that Arafat then did, and this is something you don't hear much about, but these are the facts. After demanding um, part of the profits, he then demanded that he would appoint all the staff at the hotels. So, in other words, he would place his own people, his own spies in the hotels. The end result was that the hotels withdrew their offers. And soon thereafter, Israel closed the airport in Gaza that was being used to smuggle weapons into the Gaza Strip. So, at that moment, by essentially turning away the hotels and and having the airport closed, Arafat ended any prospect of prosperity for Gaza, and massive corruption and poverty followed, and even today, tens of thousands of Arabs living in Gaza come into Israel every day to earn their livelihood to support their families because there's no possibility to do that in the Gaza Strip. Same thing is true uh, also in the West Bank. The, anyhow, what happened was um, the Palestinian Authority, which is really a terrorist group, was overthrown by another, another terrorist group called Hamas in 2007, and it took control. And what they did to the Palestinian Authority included throwing their, throwing their people off buildings, and arms that had been given to Arafat in order to control Gaza were seized by Hamas. And Hamas immediately introduced a system that radicalized an entire society against Israel. As a matter of fact, a group calling itself the Palestinian Islamic Jihad also established itself in Gaza. So, um, by the way, Jihad means a holy war. So the name Jihad, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, tells you exactly what they stand for. Now, interestingly enough, and this is really the really dangerous part, I mean, it's all dangerous, but there's some things that are even more dangerous, and that is that Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad are supported by Iran. Iran supplies money. From which they can buy, from which they can buy uh, all kind of supplies, weaponry. These are not Boy Scout movements with good intentions. The it's interesting, by the way. The the uh, Muslims in uh, Gaza are Sunni. The uh, Muslims in Iran are uh, Shiite, who generally don't get along with each other. But it, when it comes to trying to destroy Israel, they cooperate. So, despite being being uh, different, uh, if you will, religiously, Sunni versus Shiite, both groups are sacrificing the population of Gaza for the aims of the 
of the uh, to destroy the state of Israel. So it, it turns out, of course, that Iran doesn't care how many people in Gaza are killed. All they're, all they're interested in is promoting the destruction of Israel. So what is the final result of all this? Instead of a thriving economy and tourist destinations, Gaza has become a terrorist enterprise that has put nothing but poverty <coughs> and destruction to the Gazans. Firing of rockets at Israel inevitably only make the situation worse. They have only themselves to blame for not taking an alternative road that it could have led to a better life all the way back in 1993. And this is the situation today. So every now and then we have to remind ourselves in only a few words, like I just did, of how we got to where we are, how the goodwill of Israel was turned into a terrorist enclave in Gaza. The only reason the Palestinian Authority retains control in the West Bank is because it's supported by Israel soldiers. Otherwise, it would be overturned by other terrorist groups, just like it was in Gaza. These are the facts of life that we have to live with. And every now and then, despite all the headlines and all the uh, political moves you hear about, these are the facts that, that essentially establish what is really happening here. And every now and then, we have to repeat it to remind people that this is the reality. So that's why I just thought I'd take a few minutes to do so today. Now I want to turn to another subject, which is also pretty much under the headlines, but it has to do with the way a government prepares for future generations, which is really important. So the, uh, the state of Israel has suffered throughout its years of existence for many disparities in many fields. This stems from the frequent changes of government in Israel, the instability of the government, a lack of ability to build and implement long-term strategic plans. Every time a new uh, government comes into office, the parties that, fo that form the coalition uh, demand budgets to push forward their own plans, and with the particularly in the last uh, five or six years, with the government uh, falling fairly rapidly, you have uh, budgets that are being given to various uh, ministries and immediately changing the next time there's an election. So it prevents really long-term planning, which is really bad. The uh, the, it seems that the issue that may have the greatest impact on Israel's ability to deal with the future developments is how you have concern for future generations. Now, there, there are various capabilities that the state has to enact laws and essentially to build an inner structure and to build education and health systems that will satisfy future needs and assist the state's ability to adapt to the, whatever the future reality is. In other words, you should have uh, departments within the, within the government who, who are budgeted to plan for the future. It's true that Israel is, you know, under attack all the time, 
and you have to worry about the present situation, but it does not excuse any government for not setting up institutions that plan for the future and budget accordingly. So if, if, you, if you don't have strategic planning to, to, for future generations, you may find young, uh, the countries unable to bridge the gaps that may arise because of, for example, differences in income and things of that, uh, that, uh, that uh, could happen. And it's interesting how other countries have approached this situation. For example, uh, in a significant number of developed countries, uh, have addressed this problem and have established um, uh, agencies to deal with this. For example, and the UN established a Council for Future Generations. That's its name. And its goals are maintaining intergenerational equality so that the interests and rights of future generations are taken into account at the moment when making decisions that affect the environment and develop, development as the, the right to maintain uh, a healthy uh, uh, educational and even physical environment. For example, in 2001, more than 20 years ago, Germany established a body responsible for planning and legislation for future generations. Believe it or not, the Welsh government set up what they called the Commission for Future Generations. That's what, that's what its name was. In 2007, Hungary established what they called the Council for Sustainable, Sustainable Development. And the whole idea of these organizations established by the government was to develop long-term strategy. The... Uh, uh, incidentally, two other countries, it would be rather surprising when I saw this information. Finland established a Council for Sustainable Development, and Scotland set up something called Development for Foundation for the Development of Future Generations. All these countries have set up these organizations with pretty much the same names and then budgeted them, the idea being plan for future generations. Now, what has happened in Israel? In 2001, something called the Next Generation Commission was established um, here in Israel. But the commission functioned for about five years. But in 2006, when the commission's position ended, its activities were frozen by the Knesset and in 2010, the commission was abolished altogether. And this, uh, these commissions for the future generations was responsible, just like in other countries, for creating and implementing laws and regulations that would have a positive effect for future generations. This is what a country needs in order to ensure its future. And as a matter of fact, the commission was, was broad enough to provide a consultation service to Knesset in 12 different areas, including the environment, natural resources, 
science, development, education, health, economic economy, demography, planning and construction, equality of life, technology, and law. In other words, like in the other countries, Israel set up a commission and budgeted it to help plan for the future in all these areas which are important for the future of the country. But then it, it did away with the commission. The, the, the Knesset decided to do away with the commission. They abolished it. So it's interesting, by the way, why did they do so? The other countries still have these things. The reason they did so was through the pressure from the various ministers who refused to make long-term decisions and also to give up any of their budget for this commission. Instead, they preferred to implement short-term decisions that would yield political gains even at the expense of the state and its citizens and its future. In other words, politics was key in Israeli politics. So what we have now in Israel, and we're a high-tech country, really very far advanced. However, we are beginning to suffer from a brain drain. So, and we don't have any long-term strategy, strategies for the benefit of the country. And what we should really do is reestablish the Commission for Future Generations. It must get legislative powers and budgets that will enable it to enforce uh, the obligation to design and implement long-term action plans for the benefit of the country and for future generations and take a lot of take a lot of this money that's now being used to disperse the political parties and put it to some use for the future, good use for the future of the country. There are obvious areas that are important. There's education, environmental quality, research, technology, health, national infrastructure, very important, and of course the economy. Israel should be planning for the future. What, what is required to do this is to reinstate what was done away with, and, and we have to have a leadership that's required to understand that we the future depends on, on us. We, to stop the brain drain, for example, Plans should be made to develop areas here in Israel where people graduating from college can find useful employment that's also good for the country. So the uh, interesting, uh, next week, uh, there, uh, there's something to the, called the Annual Herzliya Conference. And uh, some have come up with the idea to discuss this at the annual Herzliya conference uh, with the participation of elected officials and student representatives from here in Israel. In other words, this subject, which is so important for our future, despite all the defense problems we have, which we are all aware of, and obviously they have to be handled, otherwise we don't have a future, but just to defend the borders of the country and keep the people safe is simply not enough if we do not have a future. 
and the future can only be properly planned by putting the best minds to be involved in planning that future. As I said, 20 years ago, we had such a thing. It was done away with, and the time has come to reinstate it. I'll be back after the break. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Howdy, Bruce Brill here from Nokdim, Israel, in Judea, the homeland of the Jews, and I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. In this segment of the program, I want to touch a number of, upon a number of items that are not related, but I think they should be of interest to the listeners because they're under the headlines. They don't get big publicity, but I think they're important to know about. First of all, it turns out the Israeli government's going to invest the equivalent of 150 million Israeli shekels for Jewish education in North America. The Diaspora Affairs and uh, Combating Anti-Semitism Ministry, which is really a mouthful, they'll uh, invest 150 million shekels in establishing a project to essentially expand the number of children in the Jewish day schools in North America. The minister, his name is uh, Amichai Chikli, he unveiled this project, which has the interesting title of Aleph Bet, A-B. When he gave a briefing uh, at the Knesset on what his ministry is doing, and he said it is a major crisis in Jewish education in America outside of the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox communities. The, this Aleph Bet project will be focused on schools in North America with a focus on training teachers for Jewish education and Israeli studies, as well as principals for Jewish day schools. The, by the way, the, the principals for Jewish day, day schools, uh, when I read this article, it didn't say principals, P-R-I-N-C-I-P-A-L, which means a person, but rather principals being the points for Jewish day schools. And he further said that we're losing large parts of the Jewish people as a result of a small percentage of Jews who send their children to Jewish day schools. We're in the midst of a crisis where it's possible to lose an entire generation of Jews as a result of the lack of participation in Jewish education, and we will be all over this issue in the next coming years. And by the way, this is an issue that I was very heavily involved in myself when I still lived in the United States, because in those days there was just about no uh, uh, funding for Jewish day schools provided by the uh, Jewish communities. The uh, United Jewish Appeal used to raise money every year for all kind of uh, social benefits, which were important. But at that time, they didn't raise any money for Jewish education at all. I remember being involved in a number of people in a number of different groups who were struggling to see to it that Jewish education should be provided for 
by the Jewish federations, which raise money from the Jewish community. So obviously some of the money should be used for Jewish education. And our argument at that time was if you don't provide for Jewish education, then nobody would give any funding for the Jewish federations in the future because they won't be Jewishly educated. Well, apparently this is more than 50 years ago when I was involved, and now they're taking an issue of, to be of importance. And not only that, but the state of Israel is willing to support it. So instead of uh, the money going from the states to Israel, this is Israeli money going to the states for Jewish education. According to the 2020 Pew survey, 85% of Orthodox Jewish adults said that they attended full-time Jewish day schools for at least one, for at least one year. 31% of the conservative-affiliated Jews said, though, and only 14% of reform-affiliated Jews. They're, according to the Abi Chai census of Jewish day schools published in 2020, 2020 they said that a total of uh, close to 300,000 students were, were enrolled in Jewish day schools operating at the elementary and secondary school levels. And uh, so there was an increase from previous years. Uh, each year since uh, 2018 has been an increase in the number of kids attending Jewish schools. So it appears that the rate of growth in the day school world has accelerated, which is good news. But the, the, uh, the growth rate is entirely lopsided since nearly all the growth in the number of students is in the Hasidic and Yeshiva world sectors that now comprise more than 65% of all Jewish day school enrollment. So uh, it's interesting. The, the, the same census several years ago, which is just published now, showed a decrease of students in the reform and conservative modern Orthodox day schools. Although, as I said, there's an increase in the uh, Orthodox and Haredi. So there's no doubt that investment in Jewish education is important because the uh, without it, it was simply, particularly in the United States, it would simply not be a new generation of Jews. So the fact that the state of Israel is now pouring money into Jewish education in the United States is a good thing. It's reversible, reverse of what happened 50 years ago, but thank God the state of Israel is taking this seriously. Now I want to go on to another subject. This is a really strange subject, and it, it really is way, way beneath the headlines, but uh, something should be mentioned because it describes something that's happening in Israel. I'm talking about uh, women killed, wives killed, in 2022, 24 women were killed in cases defined as what they call femicide or suspected femicide, which is an increase from 2021 when 16 women were killed. 2022, 24 women were killed. And the first quarter of 2023, this trend seems to be continuing the number of women killed in acts of gender-based violence is rising be behind that of the previous year. The 
by the way, this is in primarily in the Arab sector. Um, the so far this year, sixty-eight violent murders have been carried out in Israeli Arab communities uh, over the twelve months. Uh, 116 murders in general recorded in total in the Arab communities. The so indicates the total number of lives lost in 2023 will be higher. It, it, it killing uh, of uh, people for uh, family reasons is uh, not uncommon in the Arab community. Uh, many years ago, I know if I mentioned this in a past program, I lived in uh, Ginot Road and right across. The uh, road from Ginyot Shomo was an Arab community, and uh, what and a lot of the Arabs uh, work uh, in uh, Ginyot in the Jewish community. And uh, so one day I was I was uh, walking near the entrance to the city to the town, and uh, an Arab uh, came in walking from the village across the road, and he was carrying a bag. And he showed the bag to the Arab workers, and they all congratulated him. So when I asked the uh, workers what was in the bag that he uh, caused them to congratulate the guy. They said the in the bag was his sister's head. What happened was that uh, his sister apparently had been having an affair with a, an Arab from Gaza. So he killed his sister, chopped off his sister's head while his father went to Gaza to make peace with the family of the uh, boyfriend. So uh, it, it's very difficult, even as I describe it to the listeners, we're dealing, we're talking about a, a system that is very alien, to put it mildly, with the Western mind. Family honor is tremendously important in Arab society. It is something that is totally different than what goes on, for example, in American society. So when you when you read that there are 68 family murders in the Arab society in Israel in uh, this year so far, it, it it's something that it doesn't even get a front page here in Israel. It's way pushed way to the back pages. This is something that happens in the Arab society. I'm not saying this in condemnation. I'm saying this in fact. This is the way a society which is quite different to modern American society acts. And it's something we, we uh, I, I don't want to say we have to learn to live with, but something that exists. So it doesn't even rate a front page in the Israeli newspapers. Now, I want to go along to another talk, topic. And that is family caregivers. More than one out of five Israeli adults provide care without financial compensation for their relatives and others who suffer from disabilities. In some cases, they take care of more than one. This investment in caregiving impacts their ability to work for pay in the labor market. And there are 1.2 million caregivers who really require themselves support. A new study was done by a, an independent nonpartisan 
organization in Jerusalem called the Tau Center for Social Policy Studies, and it probes the characteristics of these caregivers and the type of care and the amount of time they give, as well as the impact they experience. By the way, a very large number of caretakers, not just Israelis, come from foreign countries, including uh, particularly the Philippines. And if you go to any hospital here in Jerusalem, you see a tremendous number of, uh, of incapacitated people or old people being accustomed, uh, accompanied by foreign uh, caretakers. You just look at them. You know they're not Israelis. But they're primarily uh, Filipinos. But caretakers is a big industry here in Israel. The, the study found that many caretakers, and we're talking about family caretakers, they invest 10 hours or more per week, which is pretty much the equivalent of a day's work. The ultra-Orthodox, which we call the Haredim, care for family members in greater numbers than the rest of the population at large. In the population at large, those aged between 50 and 59 carry the heaviest burden because they care simultaneously for their own young children as well for aging parents. So 50 to 59 is the age group carrying the biggest burden for elderly care. Nevertheless, the study found that the majority of caretakers maintain they have not experienced any harm to their ability to work outside of the home. But people just simply work hard. Uh, the uh, this, this, this study, by the way, was carried out by all kinds of professors at the uh, at the Taub Center, as well as Ben Gurion University and the University of Haifa, and um, the, the School of uh, Public Health at Ben Gurion University. And the study was based on data from the Central Bureau of Statistics. So. What they did was very interesting. The researchers divided the disabilities that required caregiving into three main categories. Physical disabilities, which include decreased mobility due to old age or physical disability, cognitive disability due to old age or emotional issues, and mental disabilities, which are primarily due to autism or, uh, or loneliness, believe it or not. 20% of the non-Haredi Jews, 34% of the Haredim, and 17% of the Arabs care for family members. The majority of assistance in the Arab society is for impairments for physical functions. So uh, that's among the Arab society. In other words, the people being cared for have physical functions. Among Haredim in the Jewish society, care is is more common for mental disabilities, and uh, it's it's sort of interesting. I'm, I'm I don't know what to do with these. I'm giving the listeners these numbers, which uh, you can evaluate them for what they're worth. The um, it, it could well be uh, that the differences among groups are likely to be due to the more traditional structure of Haredi and Arab societies, where those in needs of assistance often live with other family members 
as well as differences in the incidence of dementia in different populations. So uh, it's interesting. Furthermore, uh, the researchers found that most caregivers, like 80%, don't live with those they care for, and about 30% spend up to two hours a week. About 20% spend three and five hours a week. Another 20% spend six to nine weekly hours, and 30% more, they spend more than 10 weekly hours in caregiving activities. So the bottom line is there's a tremendous amount of caregiving taking place in Israeli society, both in the Jewish society and the Arab society here in Israel. Without going into all the statistics, which can be rather boring, what we see is that in many, that the main burden for caretaking falls on people between the ages of 40 and 60, and they're often called the sandwich generations, because at the same time that they're caring for older parents, they're also caring for young children. And they're, they, these are the ones who are more likely to crash under the weight of the burden. Um, the the uh, chances of Haredim caring for a family member is higher, and, uh, and about a third of the population and substantially higher than among non-Haredi Jews and Arabs. Among the non-Haredi Jews and the Arabs, the share caring for parents or children is similar. However, although the likelihood that an individual in Arab society will care for a family member of the same generation, like a, a spouse or a sibling, is close to half of the non-Haredi Jews. Moreover, about 80% of Arabs are not involved at all in caregiving, versus about 80% of non-Haredi Jews. So, <coughs> caretaking of family members uh, is, is a big deal in Israel. The, the amount of those invested in caretaking rises with age, and, and uh, people with a, with a high school education spend more hours in caregiving than those with the higher education. In other words, a, a high school graduate is more apt to be a caretaker for someone in his family than a college graduate will be. Uh, Arabs and Haredim spend more time for, for, for week caregiving than non-Haredi Jews. So the, um, I didn't want to over, overcome the listeners with uh, statistics which I can't even remember myself. I'm reading from a list in front of me. It's fascinating that caretaking for members of the family who require caretaking is very high among Arabs and even higher among Haredi Jews. So it says uh, that the, uh, the it's interesting. The the. While well, the majority of caregivers said that their work was not harmed by the time spent caregiving, the, the responsibilities of caretaking nonetheless have an impact on the many aspects of life, like a person's career and interpersonal relationships. So it, it, a lot of money is being spent researching caretaking. But the bottom line, as far as uh, I can tell the listeners, is that the Haredim and the Arabs 
give a tremendous amount of time taking care of members mm -hmm. of, our, of their families uh, who are who require caretaking. So it speaks well of those uh, those uh, sectors of society, and uh, they do it despite the fact that they themselves may have to work or have other commitments to like for example to their own younger children. But it's a very I think it's a very interesting statistic. They're saying something nice about the Haredi society here in Israel, and indeed about the Arab society here in Israel. They worry about the older people, and they worry about people who are incapacitated, and that speaks well of them, really does. And the very fact that it, it, uh, it, a lot of uh, effort is research being done uh, on this subject shows that it is important for society. And uh, as I said, it, it speaks well of Arab society and it speaks well of Haredi society. So I pass that information along to the listeners because it, it, uh, it gives a picture of what's happening here in Israel that doesn't get into the headlines. So again, thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves. All be well. I'll be back with you next week.